To quote Mary from Sherlock, as played by Amanda Addington, when all else fails, there are two men sitting, arguing in a scruffy flat like they've always been there, and they always will. I think that perfectly kind of rounds up podcasting for you, because this is a podcast, this is Nerd Out. My name is Sandra Felcher. Joining me is always Rob Lloyd. Hello, hello. And we do have a pretty big episode for you today. We are reviewing the complete fourth season of Sherlock. That's right, the show is back. The beast of a program that just won't stop, no matter how long the gaps are in between seasons. It's back for three brand new episodes, three telly movies. We have been waiting three years for this, because The Abominable Bride doesn't count. We will also be doing what we've been consuming lately. Got some fun stuff lined up for that, as well as the nerd headlines, which we'll get into right now. These are all the latest headlines from around the world when it comes to stuff to do with nerd. The first one is um, basically confirming a rumour in that uh, Woody Harrelson expressed interest in joining the 2018 Han Solo Star Wars movie. He said he'd like to play a mentor-type role. Well, uh, literally just after we finished recording last week, it was confirmed that he had joined the cast of Alden Ehrenrich, who will be playing Han Solo, Donald Glover, who will be playing Lando Carizian, and Amelia Clark in an as-yet-unconfirmed role. So, uh, pretty big movie so far. This is definitely the biggest cast we have had in terms of a brand new cast in Star Wars. They always kind of pick unknowns. They aren't for this one. Yeah, well, they've sort of like gone against the the tradition of what it is to do a uh, a Star Wars film, and they've gone for star power, which is um, an interesting, you know, clever move. Um, they've gone for actors who have got you know star quality to them, but aren't massive mainstream hits. I mean, Donald Glover has a massive cult following because of his work with Community and um, his uh, hip-hop work. And also Atlanta just swept the pool at um, the Golden Globes uh, recently and just is the most talked about TV show going around at the moment, which is amazing. And, you know, Emily Clark has a big, massive following through Game of Thrones. Um, and, and Woody Harrelson has probably the biggest of the stars who've joined in a long time. But they have changed that with episode eight of Star Wars. They've cast, like, Benicio Del Toro is going to be in there, getting Forrest Whitaker in Rogue One. So they are changing around a bit to find quite established actors who have got a good reputation and also got quite of a quite a following. So, yeah, it's exciting, it's an exciting cast, and, um, yeah, and it's a different vibe from what we can feel, which is good, so they really want to expand this Star Wars universe, and each of these spin-off films has its own mood and, and tone and atmosphere that is appropriate to the, to the extended universe, but is not becoming this homogenized uh, uh, film franchise. Yeah, and filming does start next month. February is when the filming will kick off. So uh, looks like we have our four leads. We don't know who else is in the movie, so it's going to be a relatively uh, small cast, which I like. So uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. At the moment, the current release date is uh, May 25th, 2018, although I have a feeling it'll be changed to December. Yeah. We do have some more Star Wars-related news, though. Rob, you got something about uh, Princess Leia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Lucasfilms have, de- uh, have just come out with a statement saying that there'll be no uh, CGI or digitalized version of uh, Carrie Fisher or Princess Leia in Star Wars Episode Nine. So that's huge, huge news. There's been a lot of debate as soon as poor old Carrie passed away and everyone tried to deal with the shock of that and then, then Debbie's passing as well, then those awkward questions started coming up about what happens now, what goes on now, and there's been a lot of debate within the fans, done quite respectfully, which is really, really good. 
um, just going, what are the options? Do we CGI uh, Carrie Fisher for episode nine so we don't have to change the, the script and the plotting that it already had in mind for, for Leia's story? And they've proven they can with Grand Moff Tarkin, you know, and Peter Cushing's estate gave their blessing. There's talks of do they recast, do they completely rewrite and actually deal with it so that Leia's part has changed completely and they actually deal with the fact that Carrie Fish has passed away and Leia is as well. So all this debate has been going on and um, at least one aspect of it has been confirmed and that one answer has been given to us that they did have discussions with Todd Fisher with the, uh, Carrie Fisher's estate and uh, apparently they came back with the decision that there'll be no CGI Carrie Fisher, which is which is which is good. They've actually released a statement, uh, Lucasfilm, which was absolutely beautiful, and they said we don't normally respond to fan or press speculation, but there is a rumor circulating that we would like to address. We want to assure our fans that Lucasfilm has no plans to digitally recreate Carrie Fisher's performance as Princess Leia or uh, General Leia Organa. Carrie Fisher was is and always will be part of the Lucasfilm family. She was our princess, our general, and more importantly, our friend. We are still hurting from her loss. We cherish her memory and legacy as Princess Leia and will always strive to honor everything she gave to Star Wars. So that's a beautiful statement, and um, now we wait and see. Moving on from that, I know it's tough, but we do have to move on. More news. Uh, The last bit of news here is one that a lot of people are quite happy about. I know I am... uh, Definitely in that in that group, we finally have a release date for the, I guess, revival of the uh, classic 1990 Mark Frost and David Lynch TV show Twin Peaks. It's coming back for an 18-episode run on Showtime over in America. We are getting it on Stan here in Australia, I think just hours after it airs over there. We are getting it on May 21st. That'll be the 22nd in Australia. But yes, May 21st, 2017, Twin Peaks is back with the original cast, a bunch of new people. Uh, it will be continuing the story from the Firewalk With Me movie, which came out in 1992, um, which was a kind of prequel, sequel film thing. The new TV show will pick up where that left off, apparently with uh, 217 actors and actresses involved, so a massive cast. Uh, they're really <laughs> pouring their money into this one, and... Um, I'm hoping that that it works, because revivals are always a weird thing. Some of them work, like uh, the X-Files 10th season. Some of them don't, like the 24 revival they tried a little while ago. That was very strange. What do you think? Are you a Twin Peaks fan? Are you uh, excited for the revival? Well, I'm kind of betraying my generation. I'm, you know, coming from the Generation X era, if they, if we still use that phrase, you know. You know, Twin Peaks was our, our era, you know, the early... You know, early 90s you know, my, was my time in high school, and that's when Twin Peaks hit. I never watched an episode. I still have never seen a full episode of Twin Peaks. I'm aware of the impact and the influence and how huge that show is. And there's been like once or twice I've gone, maybe I should get into Twin Peaks, but I never have. I've never watched a single episode, and I'm aware of the, the amount of pressure on me as someone from the, from the Generation X era to be a part of that you know this cultural phenomenon you know i'm thinking uh we we could get you to watch it and uh review it every now and then maybe review season one then season two then the movie that could be something that we could do uh it is coming out of course in may which is well it's just after comedy festival season which means (laughs) very busy but you know we could do that that could be something to do if i'm if i'm willing to put myself on the line and throw myself into the twin peaks world for nerd out what better way 
of uh, introducing myself into Twin Peaks is to do it for my podcast. Exactly. Definitely is a show that I am looking forward to. We are getting 18 episodes, and uh, with the possibility of more, I uh, think it was David Lynch who recently said that he is interested in uh, the future of this show, whether or not it will continue with the whole Agent Cooper storyline. We'll have to wait and see, but there is a possibility of more, which is exciting. We'll have to wait and see. And uh, they're saying that with X-Files as well. Could be coming back with a brand new cast. Will it work? We'll have to wait and see. So uh, I'm very excited for, for all these new shows returning. I think we're getting a new 24 show as well soon. Yeah, we're getting 24 Legacy, 24 Legacy, yeah. uh, keeping up with the whole real t- real time, but I think it's only 12 episodes. And uh, yet Miranda Otto's in it, uh, Bail Organa himself, Jimmy Smits is returning to television, and uh, uh, up-and-coming young actors playing the, the lead role. No no mention of Jack Bauer or anything like that. Um, and, you know, he's uh, going out to, to save the world or at least stop the... You know, he's you know, part of an assassination attempt, so he's uh, going on the run. What a time to be a nerd who was alive in the 90s or never really watched TV and just watched the old DVDs that I got from the library. What a time to, uh, to be a fan of, um, of shows from that era. They're all coming back. Everything old is new again. Like Voltron. <laughs> Enough um, with Voltron, okay? <laughs> just keep bringing it back. Rob, Voltron is back. I know, I know. No. Coming from... Like, I, I was a fan of the original Voltron and both versions of Voltron, Space Voltron with all the cars and the ships in space and the Lion one as well. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, it is time to move on from the news to something else. What we have been consuming lately, it is a pretty quiet time when it comes to new releases. Nothing really in the cinema. I think there's the Vin Diesel movie that people are saying is good. I'm not going to go see it. Which people are saying Triple X, The Return of Xander Cage is good? I have no idea, but a whole bunch of critics that I follow are going it's actually kind of good. At least it's good to know that Vin Diesel is is working in... uh... No, it's not good. There's nothing good about Vin Diesel working. The worst thing that ever happened out of saving private ryan is that it gave vin diesel the excuse to go you know what i can probably make myself into a star and he keeps making films where he is the lead he produces them he is just seen as glorious and none of them are good the only person who's felt <laughs> is vin diesel yes cannot cannot disagree with that so uh but my basic point is it's january nothing's out <laughs> so what have you been watching <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a good time off, so it's a good time to go back and revisit things that you uh, haven't watched for a while. So I've been going back yeah. and uh, watching Agent Carter. Ah, the Peggy Carter Marvel uh, series that unfortunately got axed this time last year. Yeah, cancelled uh, way too soon. They made two seasons of Agent Carter, um, and they finally released season one on Blu-ray and DVD. Uh, I watched it when it first came out on the internet and uh, got as a Christmas present uh, the Blu-ray version of Agent Carter. So it was great to go back and watch that and introduce uh, my better half to uh, the, the story of Agent Carter after Captain America. Um, for those of you that don't know, uh, Peggy Carter, played by Haley Atwell, was uh, the love interest of Steve Rogers in the first Captain America film, the first Avenger. But saying she's the love interest is kind of sort of like putting it down, really. She's a strong, independent soldier and agent working for you know working to stop the Nazis and stop Hydra. They did a eight episode uh, series telling Peggy Carter's story 
after the events of Captain America. So the war has ended. It's 1946. She's moved uh, to New York. She's working with the um, SSR. She has to deal with not only spies and infiltration and the Cold War beginning with Russia. She also has to deal with you know the horrible sexism and double standards of the time. And it's a really wonderful show. You know, she is the lead, uh, and Atwell is just a, a fantastic actress, a beautiful actress, a charismatic actress. Can do drama, can do comedy, can do the action scenes. In the first series, that's the MacGuffin of uh, Howard Stark's inventions have been uh, stolen. He's come up with some of these prototypes and horrible weapons that you know didn't work, and so they've been you know stolen, and they're going to be used for nefarious purposes. And um, Howard's butler, uh, Edwin Jarvis, that's right, the same Jarvis that uh, Paul Bettany does the voice of the computer program in the future Iron Man films, which is a nice little tip of the head. It's played by James uh, Darcy, who's absolutely beautiful. And so the two of them become this unlikely, you know, crime-fighting team trying to solve the mysteries and trying to keep all the information hidden from uh, uh, the SSR as well. So that first season is really solid, really tight, and there's not that many apart from the inventions, uh, comic booky type of elements. It's quite a well-done spy espionage series. The the CGI of New York, because it was filmed in L.A., costumes are great, the scripting's great, the characterizations are beautiful. It was a really solid eight-episode season, so it was great to revisit that. Um, uh, Caitlin just adored it. So we just uh, got back onto the internet, and we're just starting season two. And I give... Uh, Agent Carter Season 1, I give that five and a half samurai out of uh, seven samurai. And uh, I give Season season 2, five out of seven samurai. What about you, Sandra? What have you been consuming lately? I've been going back and uh, catching up on a show that really surprised me in 2015, a Netflix original series called Narcos, which is uh, based off the drug kingpin Pablo Escobar, who ruled Colombia in the 80s. The first season was the rise of his story. Season 2 picks up from there. That's what I have been watching. It came out in September, but I missed it because uh, it was a very busy time. Uh, I didn't really have the the time or the will to watch 10 episodes of what really is quite a heavy program. It's uh, it's quite full-on, quite brutal at times, so I thought I'll... Uh, I'll catch up now, and that is what I have been doing these past couple days. Uh, and this season takes place in a much shorter time frame. It is um, the fall to a certain extent. The tagline for this season was, we all know that Escobar dies, but who kills him? Ah. Uh. Yes. The show is top quality. The second season, as I said, it only takes place over, I think, maybe two years, and that means that they can focus on the character. Well, not the characters, the people, because these are all real people. <laughs> Pablo Escobar is played by the fantastic Vanga Mauer. He is just incredible as this notorious bad guy, yet he manages to bring a sense of humanity to him. You really see that he does care about his family, especially in this season. They go all out with building him as a human being, and it works really well. They don't have to compromise on the script. Most of 
uh, the dialogue in this show is in Spanish, which is which is really good. Yeah, so most of the show is all subtitled. That's what I've heard. Yeah, and then uh, the American characters do speak in English every now and then. You've got Steve Murphy, who is uh, the DEA agent who is um, tasked with tracking down Escobar. He kind of plays as... Um, he's kind of like the narrator of the story. He kind of lets you know what's happening, introduces new characters, catches you up every now and then, and he works really really well in that role. You also have another fantastic performance by Pedro Pascal, who plays Agent Peña, the other American agent who has been in Colombia for a longer time. He kind of plays the, uh, I don't want to say mentor role, but that's kind of what he did in the first season. In the, the second one, he has a really, really interesting arc. And, um, and then you also got other fantastic performances in there by actors and actresses. So yeah, Narcos season two. I'm gonna have to give it six out of seven samurai for me, I think, for the second season. Wonderful. Yeah, I'll um have to get onto that. Two very different shows, but um if you haven't seen them already, get onto them, people. Yes indeed. And it has been renewed for two more seasons, season three and four, even though Pablo's dead, spoilers, but it's history, so not really. Yes, he is dead, and season three is going to focus on uh, the Cali cartel, who kind of took over from uh, from Pablo's empire. So I'm interested in seeing what the future of the program is. I think that I think the American actors are staying on though, which is good. Definitely two shows to check out if you haven't yet. They are very good, yet very, very different. <laughs> All right, well now let's turn our focus to the main reason we are here to review. The fourth season of Sherlock. That's right, the show is back. Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss have been working on this one for a while. Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman return, as well as the possible return of Moriarty. Ooh. Pretty good. That's a pretty good Moriarty. That's really good. Oh, I think, yeah. Well, especially for the Sherlock Moriarty, I think. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, 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 yeah. That's a really good interpretation of a shit Moriarty. Well done. <laughs> Uh, now, Sherlock is a very interesting show. A lot of people love it. Uh, Rob, you have had a troubled history with Sherlock. Yeah, um, look, I'm a I'm a Holmesian uh, Holmes fan. I got into Sherlock Holmes when I was in year seven in high school, and I'm just obsessed. I've been obsessed with Sherlock Holmes through all of my high school year, and it's always stuck with me. You know, I was a scrawny, nerdy kid in country New South Wales who didn't really have the physical physique to get into football or you know, American action heroes to find someone who existed, who was, you know, famous because of his brain and his intelligence and his ability to, you know, solve crimes and decipher people just by looking at them and observing was something that really appealed to me. So my dad introduced him to me through um, the Basil Rathbone films of the thirties and forties. Um, and then I started reading the original stories, which were just, you know, everything to me you know my favorite Sherlock Holmes was Ian Richardson who only made two movies of it so he's been a part of my life you know for well over you know 25 years and I've I've seen as many different interpretations as I can I've got multiple copies of the stories the novels um, about the actors who played them the, the mythology all that type of stuff I've got a lot of baggage when it comes to Sherlock Holmes mm. And I was quite fascinated and interested about the series when it first started back in 2010. 2010, yeah. Seven years ago. How was that? 2010 was when the first series came out. And that is when I did my first ever solo show, Sandro. I'd, I'd been working for years, you know, over 10 years in the comedy scene in groups and, and, and troops and all that type of stuff with improvisation and sketch comedy groups. But I'd never done a solo show. So, you know, I'd just turned 30 
or I was, uh, well, about to turn 30. And I thought now is the time to do my first ever solo show. So uh, for the Melbourne Fringe Festival, which is like September, October, I did a week of uh, a show called uh, The Study, uh, Study in Scarlet, The Study Of, which was me acting out the entire original Sherlock Holmes story, mm-hmm. Study in Scarlet. And at certain moments, I'd break out and talk about what Sherlock Holmes meant to me. At that time, as the show was uh, going up in Melbourne, Sherlock season one went to air in the UK. Now, we didn't get it out here until it was aired on Channel 9 in um, January. So this was you know, three months, three months before it was aired in Australia. So there's talk about it on the internet. There was little rumblings of it, but mainstream audiences in Australia didn't know about Sherlock. And so I made a reference of it in my program for a study in Scarlet going, oh, check it out because I'd seen it online. Once 2011 hit, everything just went Sherlock crazy in Australia, especially, you know, it already was a massive in the UK and in America. Yeah, I do think it's the highest rated show that BBC have ever had. Yeah, I was a huge fan of season one. In, in my opinion, I'm going to say it now, a study in pink, which is the opening story. And this is a sad, sad thing for me to admit, but I don't think the show got any better than that. <laughs> in many ways, that is the perfect Sherlock story. It's a perfect introduction for John Watson, a new John Watson for the modern era. Perfect introduction to Benedict Cumberbatch as Sherlock Holmes. This is when he, this was his big break. This was his star-making role and his star-making performance in this episode. Mm. He has a that perfect balance of what Sherlock should be. You know, the perfect balance of classic stories, taking a study in Scarlet and incorporating it into a modern era. Beautiful elements of the original stories actually kept um, when in later seasons they just invented their own stories and just made more fan tributes to um, all the little homages as opposed to using full elements of the story. That And then as, as it went along, the arguments and the pain inside me as a Sherlock Holmes fan uh, took over. So that's my long convoluted connection before we go into deeper detail. How about you, Sandra? What was your, what's your initial connection with uh, the Sherlock juggernaut? Yeah, um, I've always been a fan of Sherlock. I read the books, uh, I think around the same age that you did. Uh, I got into a whole bunch of the classic movies around the time of the Robert Downey Jr. film when that came out. And then when Sherlock hit, I was intrigued. So I saw the first season and really, really enjoyed it. Uh, The same with the second one. I really enjoyed those two seasons. Um, Even The Blind Banker, I think it's a fun episode. I know a lot of people don't like that one, but I do quite like it. Uh, The only part that I don't really like about those two seasons, aside from Moriarty, is the cliffhanger for season one. I think as a whole... Sherlock's cliffhangers aren't very good. They're just kind of like Doctor Who cliffhangers in which it's something to talk about for like a week and then they resolve it pretty quickly. Uh, <laughs> and uh, season three came out and uh, and I was excited for it. And I have to say, a lot of people don't like season three. I enjoyed it, but I don't enjoy it as Sherlock. Uh, I think it's kind of... It kind of changes genre on you. Those first two episodes are kind of like a fun comedy drama and I kind of like them. The, the first episode is a bit of fun. Uh, the, the second one with the wedding is um, it's just funny. There were a lot of genuinely hilarious moments in those episodes, which I quite liked. However, the third episode was a complete mess uh, and just jumped around all over the place. None of the character moments were deserving. They just kind of came out of nowhere, and, and the cliffhanger was dumb. We'll talk about that in the review. Uh, the Christmas special, which came out last year, a lot of people liked it. I didn't like it. 
uh, I think they should have dedicated the entire episode to the flashbacks. It is very similar to my thoughts on Assassin's Creed, in which they just kept jumping to the present and just got in the way to what we were there for. Uh, I think that that would have been good if it was just like a fun, disposable episode that has nothing to do with the story, set in the olden days, um, but instead they ruined it by doing the Moriarty storyline, which, (laughs) again, we will talk about that in the main review. Uh, The characters and actors have always been the strong point for me when it comes to Sherlock. Uh, Martin Freeman is easily the best part of the show. Um, I gotta be honest, I think he's my favourite on-screen version of Watson. Might be a bit of a controversial thing to say, but uh, yeah, I really enjoy him. Um, Even in the not-so-great episodes, he really pulls it through. He is um, easily the best actor on the show. Same with Rupert Graves. I really like how he handles Lestrade. (laughs) In terms of Cumberbatch, I think he's good. I don't think he's a good Sherlock Holmes, uh, but he is a good Sherlock, the character that they made up for this show. I really enjoy him in the first two seasons. I think the writing gets progressively worse, especially in uh, in season three. His character was kind of kind of wooden at times, which um which I didn't really, really like. And for me, it's not necessarily his acting; it's more the writing. I think, which is a shame because I am a fan of both Mark Gatiss and Stephen Moffat. Really like what they have brought to the Doctor Who world, and uh, yeah. That's my general thoughts on uh, on Sherlock in the lead up to season four. Yeah, I mean, it, it's I was I was really intrigued and I was really fascinated with this modernized version of it because, and I did like what Gaddis and Moffat said that Sherlock Holmes was a, a modern man. He was a man of that time, and the reason why the Sherlock stories, Sherlock Holmes stories, were so popular is because they were so modern, so fast, so high energy, and so. Um, it was never meant to be looked upon as a relic or nostalgic. It was always meant to be of the modern time. Uh, and so incorporating that into uh, the you know, this new series of Sherlock was fascinating. So Martin Freeman is the star of the show, hands down, the greatest Watson ever. Cumberbatch is, you know, has, yeah, you know, when he's at his best is when Holmes, when he's playing what Sherlock Holmes is. Sherlock Holmes is a character who's about deep thought and process. He's not about grand performances. Whenever Cumberbatch is given too much license to go off on his off on his own little theatrical tangents, whether he's written that way or directed that way, is when we step away from Sherlock Holmes. And it's more like a you know, darker, more mature version of Moffat's Doctor Who. Uh, season three was very, very weak because of that and got whole caught up with bringing in Mary's inclusion. Overcompensating is a word that I use a lot when it comes to the modern Mary Mawson. And the less we talk about The Abominable Bride, the better. Because I want to go back and talk about uh, the biggest controversy for me or the biggest failure of the show is uh, Moriarty. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And people adore Moriarty. That's great and that's fine. And Andrew Scott is a beautiful actor. Um, And what he throws into that role of Moriarty is admirable. But the way that he has written is just... Yeah. That's not what I like. You know, that's not my vision of Moriarty. That's Moffat's, and that's fine, and that's what he, you know, him and Gaius can do that, and they've justified it by going, he has to be everything that, you know, Sherlock isn't. But, oh, my gosh, Moriarty is <laughs> just a disaster. He's kind of like, yeah, like he's kind of like a mixture of John Sims' version of the Master in the End of Time and uh, Heath Ledger's 
Joker. It's like a weird mixture. Yeah. He's kind of insane at times. It, it never really works. Yeah. They they wanted to create someone who was on the edge, on you know, who's volatile, who you didn't know what was going to happen at any point. And that's a very difficult thing to pull off in writing and in performance. And Andrew Scott does an admirable job. But for me, it doesn't work. I'm fully aware that I am in the in the minority there are so many people who adore moriarty and wanted him back to be there every single episode and just didn't want to see the back of him um there's a lot of good in sherlock but i always just see it as you know it's the ultimate (laughs) kind of like uh for those people who are harry potter fans it's kind of what the cursed child is cursed child is glorified fan fiction Mm. there's now a lot of money a lot of support behind it and you know endorsed by jk rowling but it's fan fiction it's sort of like one person, one fan's interpretation of the Harry Potter world. And this is what Sherlock is. It is ultimate fan fiction. It is two of the biggest fans going around. That's Gatiss and, uh, um, and Moffat. And it's doing their version of it. But it's, it's fan fiction. Well, especially with season four, let's jump into it. The season kicks off with uh, the six Thatchers, which was an interesting episode. It mainly focuses on Mary... As an episode, I really enjoyed the storyline of this. Yes, it's it's pretty much just James Bond, but it works. Um, Mary is portrayed quite well on screen. And as an episode, I think it worked well. It flows well. It doesn't feel like a Sherlock episode. Again, it's more of like a Bond storyline. It was a bit more like action-focused. But I think it worked for that. Uh, my main issue with this, with this episode is the same that I have with the finale of season three, and that is that the way they kind of plan out the show, especially with a lot of, I guess, the big character moments, doesn't work for me. There's this moment, I think about halfway through this episode, in which Mary has to kind of go away, and there's this montage in which she's changing personalities, again, brilliantly and then she shows up in this one place and surprise Sherlock's there and then uh, spoilers massive spoilers for the entire season she uh, she dies and I think it would have worked better if there wasn't that long time gap in the middle of the episode just jumping around it felt a bit awkward it kind of felt like this was a two-parter that they kind of mashed together like maybe it would have worked better if it was two separate episodes with like a week in between um, for me, that really undercut the emotion of Mary's death, which is a shame because it was a massive moment and it really shapes John as a character. Yeah, the structure of, of the episode kind of undid that for me. Uh, what did you think of the episode, the, the, uh, the Six Thatchers? Yeah, I guess because I was so disappointed in the lead up to that, that my expectations were incredibly low. So... I was quite surprised by the amount of negativity this episode got. I, I, I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun because I'm probably because I set myself up and going, okay, this is what I'm watching now. This is what Sherlock is. We all know what Sherlock does. The outrage I couldn't really get. I'm going, you have been watching the same show I have haven't you? They're doing the exact same thing that they've been doing all the other previous seasons. It isn't like this massive drop in quality. It's kind of just they're doing the same stuff over and over again, just with more money, but also more arrogance now. And, oh, um, yeah. I, you know, the last bit of Sherlock I saw was The Abominable Bride. So I'm there going, there is no way that Sherlock can get any worse than it is now. 
And so I saw it and I'm there going, this is good. This is fine. I'm happy with this, you know. The intro I wasn't that happy with, they brushed off the fact that Holmes, you know, killed an uber bad guy in cold blood and they covered it all up with uh, the Holmes boys being so juvenile and so immature. I'm there going, that's what I don't like about Holmes and this is why I'm, I'm, I kind of phased out there because I'm just chattering back and forth and I'm going, uh. But then we actually get into the episode where Benedict, I think Benedict Cumberbatch came back into the season maybe because he saw it as being the last with a new sense of vigor. He still had those over-the-top moments for about 35 to 40% of the episodes, but for that 65%, he went back to the to the homes that I quite liked. He was there calculating, evaluating, sorting things out, and not trying to eat the scenery any more than he had to. You don't need to eat the scenery when you're Sherlock Holmes. Automatically, that role will start devouring the furniture no matter where you are if you're a performer. Um, but with this, he kind of stepped back a bit, and it was good to see him getting back to, for most part... Uh, the definition of his role from earlier seasons. But yeah, and, and as a Holmes fan, we all know that Mary dies. So, you know, she died in a far more dramatic way than she did in the books. But um, but yeah, that scene was beautifully handled. I actually hit that emotional impact when the two of them saying goodbye to each other was um, was quite beautifully handled. So I'm not there going, it's not, it wasn't a masterpiece, it wasn't a work of art but I actually enjoyed it. I think because I came, I stepped out of my expectations and I just wanted to sit back and watch Sherlock. I wasn't excited about it. I just went, I'm going to watch this. And so that made me go, oh, okay. I'm actually pleasantly surprised because I had my expectations so low. Yeah. I will say that at the very end of the episode uh, where John is kind of like, I don't want to have anything to do with Sherlock anymore. I was kind of like, oh, we're going to get the exact same story arc that we did in, uh, in series three. But thankfully, the second episode kind of fixes that. Uh, do you want to move on to the Lion Detective? Yeah, let's move on to the Lion Detective. And this is, um, I, again, I thought this was a, a stronger episode than um, the Six Thatchers. Toby Jones was just incredible. That that's um, yeah. going and see that's a villain. That is a villain I want to see. You know, that's a Holmesian villain, not uh, not Jim Moriarty. And Toby Jones just was able to... He's a beautiful actor, Toby Jones. Toby Jones can be so reserved, but he can also be quite over the top. You know, he can walk that balance of having... He has that finesse of being able to do slightly um, dramatic moments, beautiful, nuanced moments. He can be a little bit playful and over the top. You know, his work in the Marvel Universe is, you know... Walk that between <laughs> yeah. subtle and over the top beautifully, and he did that with Dream Lord in in Doctor Who uh, season five with Matt Smith. He was a little bit more over the top, but it was menacing as well and a little bit tricking. And this was just he was full steam ahead. He was like fifteen on the ten on the scale of ten chart, but it was it worked mm. so beautifully. Not it. There was no point at all where it was pushed too far. It was pitched perfect performance but i wasn't aware of it until after i saw it i went well i don't see why anyone could think of there's anything wrong with that but then the controversy hit because um there's this character was created specifically in the holmesian world but they've done this new version of him to be a direct connection to the jimmy savile controversy that's happened jimmy savile for those of you that don't know yeah hugely popular entertainer on television for decades in this in in british television he had a show called jimmy will fix it where he'd bring kids on after his death it came out that he was this monster of a human being with sexual abuse case cases and underage 
horrible crimes, uh, you know, taking advantage. His position of authority and his position of power in television gave him free reign and access uh, to to young people all across the United Kingdom. And his line of abuse with young children is horrifying. And the worst part of it is that it was, you know, the worst kept secret in British entertainment that people knew about it and people covered it up. Mm. And so they turned that into being a reflection on that. And a lot of people have been angry about it, Sandro, because a lot of people thinking it's, uh, Moffat and Gatiss exploiting something that is, you know, still quite recent. I, I maybe I was looking at it too naively. I see, a, I saw it as a massive attack on Savile and using that as a way of having a go at this inhuman person. I didn't see it as exploiting as all, but I'm not the person to be looking at that. So I, I fully respect that there are those people out there who were horrified and disrespected by thought that this was exploitation. I'm no way going to argue with that in any way, shape, or form. One thing that has come out of all this controversy, but there's been no negativity towards Toby Jones, and this is a credit to him as a performer, there's been a lot of criticism about the choice that the writers have made and the creators of the show, but there's been no negativity towards Toby Jones. Toby Jones has created his own character, his and the, the, the praise for him has been high. And for me, his performance is the defining villain out of the entire Sherlock series. I mean, that final confrontation with Holmes in the, uh, the hospital bed and Toby Jones coming in just taking his time just beautifully done so creepy so skin crawling so beautifully evil but not played evil at all just played as a guy this is what gives him joy this was what makes his life have meaning which is just horrifying but done incredibly well yeah i completely agree toby jones was incredible in this episode as was again martin freeman as watson this is kind of like his his story of uh I don't want to say trusting Sherlock again, but the whole kind of arc for this episode was Sherlock has to try and save Watson because at the end of the last one, we did get the video message that Mary left him and uh, to save Watson, he has to get Watson to save him. And I really, I really liked that. I liked how the episode was laid out in terms of that. The final twist at the end, I actually didn't see coming, which is... Uh, which is always a good sign, unlike um, the other two episodes of the season, the uh, the surprises were surprising. Um, <laughs> as an episode, I wasn't on board for maybe the first 15 minutes, just because, um, I don't know, the layout was a bit weird, kind of jarring, but after that I was completely on board. I, uh, I really like this episode. My only negative is that Mary keeps popping up, and while those scenes work really well. It kind of annoyed me in the same way that uh, Cisco's storyline in The Flash kind of annoys me. It's, it's, it's kind of tedious. It's almost explaining to the casual viewer exactly what is going on. And I was kind of like, I already know this. Can we just get on with the plot, please? But that final scene where uh, the three of them are in Sherlock's room and they're all kind of talking and the Mary's like walking around the room. I love that sequence. That was uh, really good. Um, yeah, yeah. Watson, Watson admitting his, uh, you know, his indiscretions with uh, just the woman on the on the bus, who turned out to be something more sinister. I saw that coming. I saw that coming a million miles away. There is no way in the world that we have created in Sherlock Holmes that we have been, you know, welcomed into that Watson would just meet a random person and do that. Yeah, 
I actually, uh, I actually forgot about her character going into this one, so that's why I was surprised. I was like, oh yes, I remember that character. Oh, and what a twist! So uh, yeah, yeah. There's some beautiful lines in there. Some beautiful lines in there about you know Holmes saying that you're a good man, and he goes, you know, Holmes saying, you know, you saved me, you came and saved me. That shows you me you're a good man. He goes, no, no, no. But it took a great woman to realize that that's the only way because she knew me so well. She knew me better than I did. Mm. Beautiful stuff like that. And it was really quite painful and powerful. But had to be done, you know, admitting to the memory of Mary that, you know, that he cheated on. It was very powerful and very awkward to watch and hard to watch. And to have that resolution where they finally, the two of them hug at the end was, was earned, was very well earned. And then the big, you know, cliffhanger at the end is, you know, the psychiatrist is the missing homes. And that's a whole other story. And we'll talk about that when we deal with, uh, with uh, the final episode. Oh, Yeah. Yes, the final problem. The line detective ends with Watson being shot, and then in typical Sherlock fashion, the cliffhanger, it it doesn't really matter. Uh, It just kind of moves on. Um, The final problem is... (laughs) is a weird episode. Right, so it starts off with with the whole plane sequence, which I immediately guessed that's got to be this third Holmes. It's going to be Sherlock's sister. Um, but after that, you get a very weird sequence with um, with Mark Cadis as uh, as Mycroft, kind of having like a kind of like a parody of like a horror movie type sequence. I was confused. I was going, "What is going on?" And that is um kind of my review of the episode as a whole. It was a parody of a horror movie uh, in many ways because it was very similar to the likes of Saw. I thought, in how the episode is played out, but not necessarily in a way of we're making up our own thing, in the way of we're going to just copy everything that happens in those films and make what is pretty much a parody fan fiction version of that genre. Yeah. Uh, But we'll talk more about that later. That opening scene with the clown, what did you think of that whole sequence? Look, there's some beautiful horror moments in there, like, you know, the whole instant shock or something coming out when you're not expecting it to. So, you know, Gatiss walking through the corridors and then the, the, the silhouette of the girl racing out up the stairs was beautifully done and the appearance of the clown was quite scary and then to have that all, you know, the, the, the wool pulled over, you know, away from our eyes and say it was all just an elaborate ruse to find out the truth, <laughs> yeah. you know, typical... Uh, Sherlock, you know, deceiving and illusionists, and you know, they're you know, they're card sharks, and the cards are you know, our points of view, and they're just swindling us. Whatever needs to know is there is no other Holmes child in all the canon, in all the Sherlock Holmes stories. There is only ever two Holmes boys: Mycroft, the eldest, and Sherlock. There was a um, a passing note that one of the potential names that. Arthur Conan Doyle was going to give Sherlock Holmes before he decided on Sherlock was Sherenford. He was thinking of Sherenford as a name. That's been taken up by the fans. And fan fiction, you may find this hard to believe, was around even before the internet. Mm-hmm. So for over 100 years, there's been fan fiction and they've been taking on, there's been, you know, spin-off novels and stuff like that written where there was the third and eldest uh, Holmesian brother. So this gives the license completely to Moffat and Gators to do whatever the hell they wanted and they really did <laughs> really did they went all out this is when it goes we are not tied by that pesky thing called actual canon Sherlock Holmes. we can do whatever we want but yeah I do see how it's like it's their tribute or parody of a horror story and it's very much like 
the torture porn of the noughties. You know, it's very much sore and hostile type thing. It's like, let's put humans into that moral maze dilemma, whether it was successful or not, as it's up to our individual choices. I did like the fact that it had the three men together. I liked, I did like how the Holmes boys and, uh, and Watson had to deal with this together and they had to deal with all the murky stuff that, that Mycroft thought he was doing for the benefit of everybody. But, you know, he is so intelligent, he didn't even see the clear way of dealing with it, um, which makes him ultimately stupid. Yes. Yeah, I did like those character moments, as you, you said. All the stuff with the main three was really good. The sequence with Molly, as well, I thought was quite nice. Uh, they could have expanded on yeah. that in the ending. They didn't. A little bit disappointed by that. But that scene in particular, I really liked. A lot of the moments with Eurus. Uh, especially the final sequence with the violin, I really enjoyed. But as a whole, yeah, I have to say, this felt like not only a parody of like a horror movie, but a parody of Sherlock. Uh, the amount of twists they managed to pack in. I liked the first one with the whole uh, thing with Mycroft. I really enjoyed that. But there were like there was like a twist every, what, 10 minutes? And a lot of them <laughs> were really predictable, uh, especially the one with Moriarty, which was just plain just dumb it was just dumb um, I, as soon as he appeared i'm there going don't you dare don't you dare and then they put up christmas day you know five years ago <laughs> i literally jumped up and i'm going hallelujah praise the lord i don't care i've been hoodwinked i don't care and i knew there would be thousands of Holmes fans there going no and i went yay i just started laughing i was right. just like this is just the fact that they managed to do this i not only respect that they that they did that. It's a very brave choice, knowing a lot of uh, the Sherlock fans on the internet. But uh, at the same time, it's lazy storytelling because they tease this for what four years. They've been teasing this, yeah. And the fact that it's all resolved in he just recorded a whole bunch of messages. In terms of storytelling, I thought it was very lazily, as is the episode as a whole. But at the same time, I respect that they did it because it was quite funny just to see the internet explode the moment that happened. Yeah, yeah. And there's been a lot of talk about um, uh, the resolution at the end, you know, when when Sherlock does actually figure out that, you know, the, the plane is just a metaphor, which is kind of lazy and awkward and uh, a curveball for no apparent reason. Because a part of me was thinking, is this the actual plane that went down in Belgravia? Or, but then they're going, it's stretching it too much. And so then to have it all resolved just with, you know, as someone said in a review that I read, you know, that must have been some hug. Sherlock must have given one big hug to Eunice for all that years of preparation and training just to be evaporated with her, you know, with her being hugged by her brother. But yeah, and so then the big reveal is obviously about this thing. Um, Victor Gregory, who is uh, a lot of people know in Sherlock Holmes, well, is uh, is mentioned quite in passing in one story that um, was before Watson was Sherlock's only real dear friend who they shared a room with in uh, college, and so there's a lot of fan fiction going around about that they were actually in, in a relationship together, that they were you know it was Sherlock's first love. Um, there were rumours that Idris Elba or Tom Hiddleston would play that role. There was even talk that Tom Hiddleston would play Sherinford before it was turned out as Euros. So all this online fan fiction stuff happened, and that was a nice little nod back to one of the little gags that they make back to uh, the original text that you know Victor Gregory was actually 
this high school, the childhood friend, killed by Eros, and that's why she was you know, um, shepherded away and lied to the parents and said that she died. Yeah, the concept was good, but again, like it's really dark stuff, and it could have been like quite powerful. But at that point, we'd already had, what, ten twists, and then we got this other one, and it was just like another twist on top of another one, and it was kind of tiring at that point, and it could have worked so well, but again, I think they kind of underplayed it, and it it was just kind of frustrating at that point. In closing, final problem uh, is okay, I... I know they're thinking about bringing it back for a fifth season, and we we will talk about this in a future episode. I've got something lined up, which is quite cool, but I think this works as the final episode of Sherlock. Is it a great episode? No. I have a lot of problems with this one. Coming out of it, I was kind of like, well, I'm very torn. It had some very great moments, but as an episode, I thought the writing was quite lazy. But as a final episode, and again, with that final shot with them running in slow motion... (laughs) For some reason, again, I laughed when I saw that. I think it's quite it's quite a fitting end for the show, I thought. And, of course, the the title, The Final Problem, allude to the fact that this is the final episode of Sherlock, and I think it worked for what we needed from a final episode. So, yeah, it was... It, for me, I was just glad to... I'm glad... <laughs> it, it, not meant to sound as harsh as it is. I'm glad to see the back of it. I'm glad to see, you know, that this... Because what Spectre proved... Spectre proved they ended on a definite note. Sam Mendes isn't going to come back. Daniel Craig shouldn't come back at the end of Spectre for the Bond movies. Those four films with Daniel Craig were resolved at the end of Spectre. Bond leaves. He goes off with his younger girl. He's ready to start his new life. So we're ready to start the 25th uh, Bond movie with a complete new Bond. If he carried on, it wouldn't work. Look at Community. Community season three ended on a beautiful note of sort of like maybe renewed maybe we won't they came back with season four it was horrible and then season five and six did an admirable job to bring it back to a point where you get to the end of season six and it has another conclusion but we don't want that with home we had a good moment to end it on everything's resolved and we can go on and the best part about it is it ends with how it should end just like doctor who should never end because it should all there should be no end to the doctor who story it's always a case of he gets in his tardis and flies onto his next adventure and that's what i liked about them ending sherlock it's Watson and Holmes together solving crimes. It's a good, you know, good riddance to bad rubbish. Um, but there's some beautiful moments in there, but there's some also beautiful rubbish in there as well. Moriarty. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, well, then, that's Series 4. General thoughts. I thought it was a bit of a mess. I enjoyed the second episode, The Line Detective. However, uh, the Six Thatchers had its moments as a whole. Again, the way it was set up, I found a bit jarring. However, it is much better than what we saw in Series 3. And the final problem, good ending. Again, a bit of a mess. And uh, uh, all in all, Series 4 of Sherlock, not too bad. And uh, out of 7 Samurai, I think I'll give it... Well, I don't want to be too harsh, but uh, I'm probably going to give it... Three and a half out of seven. Sounds a bit harsh, but uh, I didn't love it. I enjoyed elements of it. What do you think? Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, I've, 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 it was definitely uh, harkening back to the glory moments of season one. You know, Study in Pink, as I said, is the, the greatest Sherlock story, then followed by Scandal and Belgravia, and everything else is just a mess. So, yeah, I give it four. I give it four samurai out of, out of seven samurai. I was, yeah, I, I was a lot more 
appreciative of it because I went in with no expectations at all. And I could see a lot of people not liking it because they were wanting so much more from it. Expect expect less, and you get so much more. Yeah, indeed. So that is our review of Sherlock Series 4. What did you think of it? You can send in your thoughts, feedback.nerdout at gmail.com, or you can go to our Facebook page, fb.me forward slash nerdout with Rob and Sandro is the URL. Got a very fancy direct link there, which is which is quite nice. And uh, we do already have some feedback on the Facebook page. Uh, Rob, what have, what have people been saying? Yeah, Ainsley Whip said uh, there should have been a rule about how many plot twists you can have in one episode with the crying uh, laughy face. I totally agree with you there, Ms. Whip. And Amanda, Amanda had a let it all out. She said, I think they just got carried away, plot twist for the sake of it. It was fairly pointless. Didn't make much sense the way it usually does. Uh, no sense of purpose. The big reveal of you was last episode, and I feel like they really didn't uh, get where they could have in this episode. I love Sherlock, but this season was not up to par. Rather disappointing, really. And uh, there we go, our review of Sherlock. Let us know what you think. We will read it out next episode. And also coming up on the show in the future, uh, not next week, but in a few weeks' time, as I said, I do want to have a little bit of a Sherlock discussion. Do we need a fifth season? Let us know what you think. Uh, we, We might have a guest coming on to discuss that. Also, some fun things are coming out to review. Triple X, the return... No, we're not, we're not reviewing that. <laughs> and this is the last performance of Rob Lloyd with... Uh, no, <laughs> no, we will be reviewing a series of unfortunate events. The complete first season, all eight episodes, has dropped on Netflix this past week. We have been watching it, and we will give you a full review next week on the program. Uh, aside, I don't know why I did that accent. There you go. That's what happens when you watch Sherlock. And with that, that is the episode, episode 8 of Nerd Out. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, make sure you nerd out. See ya. Bye. You were just listening to Nerd Out, episode 8, featuring Rob Lloyd and Sandra Felcher. This has been an improbable podcast production. Feel free to contact us at feedback.nerdout at gmail.com or send us a message on Facebook for any review recommendations or feedback. The links are in the description. The views expressed are those of the speaker and don't necessarily represent those of the other speakers or the network. The opening and closing music of this show is Denial by Dark Shadows. No copyright infringement was intended. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Oh, Sherlock. That's right, the show is back with... with, with. I, I almost, I don't know what I almost said, but I definitely wasn't about to say Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> You're going to throw oh, dear. some syllables and, and consonants together, and it would have been a name. It wouldn't have been. It would have been a name, yeah. I don't know what it would have been.